Okay, um, really quickly, for everyone, there are several handouts you should have. The first one is the syllabus for the course, and then uh, Mark has three pages of handouts over there, and I've got a one-page front-and-back handout. So make sure you have all of those. Send a representative from your table to get more if you don't have them all. Um, a brief comment about the course, what the syllabus is going to show you is that every week we're going to alternate. We're going to do every time period twice, essentially. First, Mark is going to talk about the social history, what was going on at the time, what would it be like to be living at this time, what would it be like to be a church member at the time that we're talking about. And then the following week, I'm going to come back and talk to you about more detail about what were the theological questions that were being asked, what were the problems that were being faced and what was involved in the decisions the church was having to make as to what was going to count as Orthodox Christianity and what wasn't. Um, so you'll, you'll see that structure reflected on the syllabus. We'll only depart from it coming into spring break to account for our travels. Um, every week we have recommended readings from our two books on there. These are recommended readings. They're not required. I will be testing you to see if you've read them, um, at least not formally. And um, they're really up to you. It, it's meant to give you, if you want more background and you want a little preparation for what we're going to talk about, just dig a little deeper into what we're doing, that's up to you. You can, you can use those for that purpose. Um, they're not meant to be overwhelming or to um, add to your already busy lives, so use them as makes sense for you and your circumstances. And, um, and if you have any questions about anything that comes up in the reading, feel free to bring that up here in the, these conversations. We're going to keep this, keep this as a conversation, so while we do have material we want to give out to you. We also want to give you a chance to interact with the ideas and to interact with, with us and, and ask the questions about, well, why was that such a big deal? Who cares if we say that or not? What was really at stake with that? Or isn't that silly? Or haven't we gone the other way with that? Or whatever. Um, so that's basically what we're going to do. Um, the, the, the period of time the course is going to cover is going to, we're starting at the end of the New Testament, the close of the New Testament canon. So for all intents and purposes, this is the beginning of the second century. And we're going to go through the fourth ecumenical council, which was where we settled the great Christological uh, debate over the two nations in Christ, whether he's, how we were going to express his divinity and his humanity at the same time without getting into inconvenience. So that's going to be the scope of our course. Um, so today, because of the snow last week, we're going to combine the first two weeks on your show, which Mark's going to talk a little bit about um, through his introduction as to what's going on in the society at the time, what's the church look like when the New Testament ends, all of that, and then I'll come back and talk to you just a little bit about some of the philosophical background, what were the ideas that were floating in the air um, at the time that the church was getting started. So, turn it over to Mark. All right, thanks, Jane. So, I'm going to be starting with the handout labeled CBC Church History 1 Historical Introduction, the one that looks like this. Um, if you want to go ahead and follow along. And uh, I'm going to be moving pretty quickly through since, as you just mentioned, we're um, putting our two introductions together in one today. And so my focus then, looking here on uh, point A, um, that I would want to just get out there uh, for the very beginning of this course is that this will be, uh, my sessions will be talking about the social background of the church, the structure and spread of the church, relationship of believers um, to the cultures that they encountered, and the way that early Christians transformed those cultures. And uh, Junius gave, I think, an excellent um, quick introduction to why we start this course at around 100 AD, um, as opposed to, say, starting it with the birth of Christ or with the ascension. Um, because this is 
time when the New Testament canon is roughly coming to a close. We'll talk a little bit more about, um, actually, uh, we'll talk about canonization, how we decide what's in the New Testament and what's out um, in some more detail a little bit later, but just for the very beginning of things, roughly the year 100, we figure that the, um, the Gospels are being put together, collections of Paul's letters, um, and most of the writings are um, coming together in this period, and then uh, writings from what we call the early church fathers, the um, disciples of the disciples and people in further generations uh, down from that are starting to be written and coming together and telling us more about developments of, church, of the church after the first generation of the apostles of Jesus has passed away. So let's go and move quickly to number three, and let's talk about this first culture, this um, major nexus of cultures into which the church was expanding, which is what we know as the Roman Empire. So if you can take a look at page three of the historical handouts, um, it looks like this. this is a map of the Roman Empire. You might want to just keep it out on your table and be looking back and forth as, as I talk. Uh, this is a map of Rome at the height of its power. Uh, if you take a look at the map, you'll see that the Mediterranean in this period is a Roman lake. Um, Roman hegemony surrounds the Mediterranean completely and with a land area roughly equivalent to um, the lower 48 states, the continent of the United States. Uh, it was one of the largest uh, empires in antiquity, uh, one of the longest lasting, one of the most powerful. And Christianity comes into it right when um, it, Rome established itself as the premier power in this part of the world. What does this mean? So, um, it means that there's unbroken trade across the Mediterranean Empire, this, uh, across the Mediterranean. This had never happened before in um, human history, and it wasn't going to happen again for about another thousand years. Uh, Roman generals had gotten rid of pirates. Um, there was one state all the way around the Mediterranean. You could sail from Spain to Palestine with um, reasonable chance success. I mean, there were still um, storms and things like that to take care of, but uh, the chances of you being captured um, were pretty low, and uh, you wouldn't have to pay uh, tolls in between uh, these several different areas. And so the exchange of goods, and then with it, the exchange of ideas across this entire area was um, relatively simple. And so Christianity could move out very quickly. If you think about the um, missionary journeys of Paul, going from Tarsus all the way to Rome and all throughout the um, northeastern Mediterranean. Uh, that was his ability to do that um, in several times over one lifetime was uh, relatively unique to this period. Uh, Rome was a harsh governor, but relatively fair. Um, in some sense, it simply had to be. They governed too many different kinds of people uh, for them to try and impose one way of doing things across the board. Um, they had to make a lot of allowances for uh, the laws and religious customs of various groups of people, um, but that tolerance certainly only went up to a point. Uh, Romans were very conscious of their own military superiority and, um, and to a certain extent of their own cultural superiority. So we'll talk a little bit about how far um, Rome was willing to go in terms of being tolerant um, and why it was and then what the boundaries of that toleration were specifically next week when we start to talk about persecution of Christians and um, the unique reasons why um, Romans persecuted Christians in the way that they did, um, which is very different from the way that Christians have been persecuted in other periods of church history and in other uh, geographical locations. 
So this Roman culture that is now spreading all the way across the Mediterranean uh, has some specific characteristics. We're on point B under uh, number three now. Greek and Latin are the universal languages for spreading uh, Greek culture and Roman law. So people are reading the Odyssey and the Iliad and the Greek philosophers, and they can read them anywhere in the Mediterranean. And Roman law um, in written codified forms is being spread throughout the Mediterranean as Romans conquer new peoples. Sometimes they're allowed to stay under their own laws, um, and other times uh, Romans impose um, specific Roman Latin law on them. And this is a, a relatively uniform um, body of laws and uh, way of doing things. Uh, so Romans send out provincial governors um, to different parts of the Mediterranean, and they're reporting back to emperors, and the emperors are trying to formulate a universal policy with, of course, some uh, room for local variations. So with Greek and Latin being the universal languages, uh, the New Testament, which is documents that are written for a movement originating in the Middle East, um, originating, uh, originating among people speaking Aramaic, um, which is a Semitic language related to Hebrew, are written nevertheless in Greek. Uh, why would they be written in Greek? Because that is the language that the most uh, number of people would be able to understand. So there are some, there is a possibility that some of the earliest documents, maybe an original version of Matthew, was um, written at least in some parts in Aramaic or in Hebrew, but the, all of the documents that we have for the entire New Testament are in Greek, and they're in what is known as a koine Greek, koine meaning common. Um, a Greek that wasn't specific to one dialect of the original Greek people, but could be understood throughout the Mediterranean and could be um, spread and copied and read relatively easily, um, especially by Jewish communities um, who were themselves spread throughout the Mediterranean and had been spreading throughout the Mediterranean since um, the conquest of Israel and Judah in the um, several centuries before this period um, that Preston's been talking about recently. Um, Jewish diaspora, the spreading out of Jewish communities had been going on for a few centuries, and then in our period has been given a real acceleration um, with Jewish conflicts uh, with the Roman Empire. People, uh, Jewish people have been spread throughout the Mediterranean. We want to give out to you. We also want to give you a chance to interact with the ideas and to interact with, with us and, and ask the questions about, well, why was that such a big deal? Who cares if we say that or not? What was really at stake with that? Or isn't that silly? Or haven't we gone the other way with that? Or whatever. Um, so that's basically what we're going to do. Um, the, the, the period of time the course is going to cover is going to, we're starting at the end of the New Testament, the close of the New Testament canon. So for all intents and purposes, this is the beginning of the second century. And we're going to go through the fourth ecumenical council, which was where we settled the great Christological uh, debate over the two nations in Christ, whether he's, how we were going to express his divinity and his humanity at the same time without getting into inconvenience. So that's going to be the scope of our course. Um, so today, because it's still last week, we're going to combine the first two weeks on your syllabus. Mark's going to talk a little bit about um, his introduction as to what's going on in the society at the time, what's the church look like when the New Testament ends, all of that. And then I'll come back and talk to you just a little bit about some of the philosophical background, what were the ideas that were floating in the air um, at the time that the church was getting started. So, turn over to Mark. All right, thanks, Jane. So, I'm going to be starting with the handout labeled CBC Church History 1 Historical Introduction, the one that looks like this, um, if you want to go ahead and follow along. 
And uh, I'm going to be moving pretty quickly through since, as Junius mentioned, we're um, putting our two introductions together in one today. And so my focus then, looking here on uh, point A, um, that I would want to just get out there uh, for the very beginning of this course is that this will be, uh, my sessions will be talking about the social background of the church, the structure and spread of the church, relationship of believers um, to the cultures that they encountered, and the way that early Christians transformed those cultures. And uh, Genius gave, I think, an excellent um, quick introduction to why we start this course at around 100 AD, um, as opposed to, say, starting it with the birth of Christ or with the ascension. Um, because this is a time when the New Testament canon is roughly coming to a close. We'll talk a little bit more about, um, actually, uh, we'll talk about canonization, how we decide what's in the New Testament and what's out, um, in some more detail a little bit later. But just for the very beginning of things, roughly the year 100, we figure that the, um, the Gospels are being put together, collections of Paul's letters, um, and most of the writings are um, coming together in this period, and then uh, writings from what we call the early church fathers. The... Um, disciples of the disciples and people in further generations uh, down from that are starting to be written and coming together and telling us more about developments of, church, of the church after the first generation of the apostles of Jesus has passed away. So let's go and move quickly to number three and let's talk about this first culture, this um, major nexus of cultures into which the church was expanding, which is what we know as the Roman Empire. So if you can take a look at page three of the historical handout, um, it looks like this. This is a map of the Roman Empire. You might want to just keep it out on your table and be looking back and forth as, as I talk. Uh, this is a map of Rome at the height of its power. Uh, if you take a look at the map, you'll see that the Mediterranean in this period is a Roman lake. Um, Roman hegemony surrounds the Mediterranean completely and with a land area roughly equivalent to um, the lower 48 states, the continental United States. Uh, it was one of the largest uh, empires in antiquity, uh, one of the longest lasting, one of the most powerful. And Christianity comes into it right when um, it, Rome established itself as the premier power in this part of the world. What does this mean? So. Um, it means that there's unbroken trade across the Mediterranean Empire, this, uh, across the Mediterranean. This had never happened before in um, human history, and it wasn't going to happen again for about another thousand years. Uh, Roman generals had gotten rid of pirates. Um, there was one state all the way around the Mediterranean. You could sail from Spain to Palestine with um, reasonable chances. I mean, there were still um, storms and things like that to take care of, but uh, the chances of you being captured um, were pretty low, and the, you wouldn't have to pay uh, tolls in between uh, these several different areas. And so the exchange of goods, and then with it, the exchange of ideas across this entire area was um, relatively simple. And so Christianity could move out very quickly. If you think about the um, missionary journeys of Paul, going from Tarsus all the way to Rome and all throughout the um, northeastern Mediterranean. Uh, that was his ability to do that um, in several times over one lifetime was uh, relatively unique to this period. Uh, Rome was a harsh governor, but relatively fair. Um, in some sense, it simply had to be. They governed too many different kinds of people uh, for them to try and impose one way of doing things across the board. Um, they had to make a lot of allowances for uh, the laws and religious customs of various groups of people. 
um, but that tolerance certainly only went up to a point. Uh, Romans were very conscious of their own military superiority and, um, and to a certain extent of their own cultural superiority. So we'll talk a little bit about how far um, Rome was willing to go in terms of being tolerant um, and why it was and then what the boundaries of uh, that toleration were specifically next week when we start to talk about persecution of Christians and um, the unique reasons why um, Romans persecuted Christians in the way that they did, um, which is very different from the way that Christians have been persecuted in other periods of church history and in other uh, geographical locations. So this Roman culture that is now spreading all the way across the Mediterranean uh, has some specific characteristics. We're on point B under uh, number three now. Greek and Latin are the universal languages for spreading uh, Greek culture and Roman law. So people are reading the Odyssey and the Iliad and the Greek philosophers, and they can read them anywhere in the Mediterranean. And Roman law um, in written codified forms is being spread throughout the Mediterranean as Romans conquer new peoples. Sometimes they're allowed to stand to their own laws, um, and other times uh, Romans impose um, specific Roman Latin law on them. And this is a, a relatively uniform um, body of laws and uh, way of doing things. Uh, so Romans send out provincial governors um, to different parts of the Mediterranean, and they're reporting back to emperors, and the emperors are trying to formulate a universal policy with, of course, some uh, room for local variations. So with Greek and Latin being the universal languages, uh, the New Testament, which is documents that are written for a movement originating in the Middle East, um, originating, uh, originating among people speaking Aramaic, um, which is a Semitic language related to Hebrew, are written nevertheless in Greek. Uh, why would they be written in Greek? Because that is the language that the most uh, number of people would be able to understand. So there are some, there's a possibility that some of the earliest documents, maybe an original version of Matthew, was um, written at least in some parts in Aramaic or in Hebrew, but the, all of the documents that we have for the entire New Testament are in Greek, and they're in what is known as a koine Greek, koine meaning common, um, a Greek that wasn't specific to one dialect of the original Greek people, but could be understood throughout the Mediterranean and could be um, spread and copied and read relatively easily, um, especially by Jewish communities. Um, who were themselves spread throughout the Mediterranean and had been spreading throughout the Mediterranean since um, the conquest of Israel and Judah in the um, several centuries before this period um, that Preston's been talking about recently. Um, Jewish diaspora, the spreading out of Jewish communities had been going on for a few centuries and then in our period has been given a real acceleration um, with Jewish conflicts uh, with the Roman Empire People, uh, Jewish people have been spread throughout the Mediterranean. So what you see when you're reading the New Testament is that whenever Paul goes to communities in Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey, um, you can see that on your map here, um, he continually finds Jewish synagogues um, that are already there, and he can go and preach to Jews there. And the Jews in these synagogues outside of Palestine and the Holy Land, uh, the language that they would be speaking there was generally Greek even though they would read the Torah out in Hebrew. Um, the language of communication would have been Greek. And so um, you can see that the um, cultural influences of this language, the, the philosophy that is behind it that helps shape the vocabulary that Junius will be talking about in just a couple of minutes, is um, very much um, communicated through this cultural overtone, the, the sense that all these people were reading 
a very similar body of text in that language and that um, the Christian texts are coming into it. So, for example, when um, in the Gospel of John, um, John talks about God as the Word, about Jesus Christ as the Word. Um, that word logos in Greek has a long um, history in Greek philosophy that John is uh, aware of and incorporating into uh, his theology, which is itself based on the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. But he's, he, he knows what, what that word means in Greek, and he wants to, to use that and to transform it um, for the message of the gospel. Uh, Roman religion at this time, uh, looking at point two under culture, was public, communal, and tolerant up to a point. Roman religion is somewhat different from the uh, philosophical trends that Junius is going to be talking about. Um, uh, the, the cult of various Roman gods, um, Jupiter, Juno, um, Vulcan, these, these, um, the pantheon that you might be familiar with, um, is something that has very little to do with a person's private life, of an individual's private life in sort of you know, prayer and meditation. It is much more ceremonial and public. Um, the Roman gods were god, were civic gods, gods of a city and of a place and of a community. And so to be a citizen of Naples or a citizen of Athens or a citizen of Alexandria in Egypt um, was to worship a certain god or set of gods uh, publicly and in certain ceremonies that all of your neighbors and the, the people that you lived with would also be celebrating together and would have relatively little to do with uh, the way that you thought about morality um, and the existence of an afterlife or not. Um, and it was uh, very much tied up with the state. The, the separation of church and state that we take for, for granted um, in the modern era did not exist in the ancient world. Um, to be loyal to Rome was in some extent to allow for the Roman gods. Um, what this meant in practical terms, though, was not that the Romans went around and in every conquered territory imposed their gods at the expense of the local gods. Romans were perfectly happy to allow uh, people in new conquered territories to continue, continue worshiping their old gods as long as they allowed room for the Roman gods to come in and for veneration of the Roman emperor specifically. So... The Romans took it as saying, well, these other gods do exist alongside our gods, but clearly our gods are more powerful. We've conquered you. Our legions have the most powerful gods patronizing them. And so you should simply, as a conquered people, recognize that our gods um, are the ones that should hold sway. So you put them kind of in, your, in the context of your worship alongside ours. And one scholar has estimated that around the Mediterranean at the time that Christianity started to spread, there might have been as many as 30,000 different um, gods and cults being worshipped um, in various cities. And the Romans were simply happy that as long as they got their due, um, that other gods could uh, exist as well. The problem, of course, would arise when a particular group, say Jews or Christians, happens to say that our god is the only god, and the Roman gods aren't going to be a part of this. Because Romans took it, looked at that and said, that is not simply a rejection of our culture, a rejection of um, the way that we see the world, but it's a rejection of our political and military power. Um, that is the foundation for rebellion, and we can't have that. And so we'll see uh, in the coming weeks that um, Jews were able to make a sort of 
truth and ex to become a bit exceptional in this. Um, one of the things the Romans did respect was that a cult was very ancient and uh, the Jews had the claim to um, one of the oldest cults in the Mediterranean. And so the Romans said, okay, we understand that you guys have been around and doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years. Your scriptures are older than ours. Um, we'll, we'll make certain allowances. But Christians uh, were rejecting all of that. Christianity at this time, remember, is new. It's, it's a little bit tough for us to, think, to get our minds around with Christianity being 2,000 years old. But there was a time when it was the new thing uh, on the block, the new innovation. And for Romans, things that were old are as good as gold. Anything that is new, throw it out. Get rid of it. It is going to be um, something that will take us away from the glory of our fathers and of our ancestors. And so um, the one thing that Judaism had going for it, even though it was exclusive, was that it was old. Christianity didn't have that. And so it's setting itself up for um, some real conflicts with the Roman Empire. So we'll talk about that a bit more um, in the time to come, but why don't we switch to the church in this period, which is um, the main focus of what we're going to be doing. Um, I talked a moment ago about sources. Um, the sources for the church immediately following the writing of the New Testament are a collection of Christian documents that we've called the Apostolic Fathers. This is a um, term that scholars made up in the 17th century that refers to a collection of documents written by Christians in the first generation following the Apostles. Um, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Hermas, Polycarp, Papias, and the authors of Epistles to Barnabas, who is um, one of the uh, disciples of Paul mentioned in the New Testament, possibly not um, actually written to that Barnabas, but we'll, we can get into some of that a little more later, um, and then the Ignatius and uh, the Didache, uh, a book of teaching and um, a, that gives us a little bit of a window into what church life was like actually in this period. Um, and there are some of the first non-Christian sources that uh, appear that actually start talking, recognizing Christianity from outside of the Christian community and saying, hey, um, here are these new people and let's talk about them a little bit. Um, Suetonius, um, number point two, um, number four is a Roman biographer. Uh, Tacitus is a Roman historian. And Josephus was a Jewish historian writing for Romans. And each of them have very, a very small amounts to say. They don't, um, they don't seem to be aware very much of Christianity in detail, but they recognize that this new group is here. Um, and these together form our sources for talking about what the earliest Christian communities after the New Testament is being written look like. So, how were these Christian communities structured? Uh, earliest churches were based in cities, uh, as we see from the missionary journeys of Paul. Uh, they're not a sort of grassroots um, countryside development. In fact, the, uh, as a general pattern, the, the countryside, the villages, the farmers were converted after the people in the cities, um, as a general rule throughout the period that uh, we'll be covering in this course. Um, the Christians met in houses or even out in fields, um, sometimes for worship at dawn. So just remember that if you're thinking that uh, 9 a.m. class is a little bit early. They had uh, no dedicated buildings. Um, for Christian worship, because obviously the first Christian communities were very small, uh, and of course they were illegal. So to go out and build a large building, put a cross on top, was probably kind of a bad idea. And so uh, Christians tended to worship in buildings that existed for some other purpose and that they then used for um, worship uh, at various times during the week, 
uh, just as we see in Christian developments throughout church history, even in China today, many uh, churches follow the same model. Uh, there was a mix of men and women, slaves and free people, rich and poor. This was another um, radical new innovation of Christian community is that it was a cross-section of the entire society where, um, at least theoretically and at least according to um, the New Testament standards, everyone in there would be equal. Of course, um, early Christians being human, uh, differences started to come up, and we can see this even in, recorded in the New Testament where uh, people are not quite following Christ's ideal of um, all people being equally beloved by God, um, and there become some differences between classes um, in the churches that Paul in particular is talking about, but overall, the Christian community was noted for the fact that it um, treated slaves and other people of low or no status um, very highly, and people in fact slaves could become, um, could take office in the church and could um, rule, have authority over congregations and um, over the resources of the church at a very early period when um, people of that status simply didn't do that in Roman society. Services were marked by singing of hymns, uh, instruction of the faith, and above all, the celebration of the communal meal that Christ instituted at the Last Supper. So the hallmarks of Christian worship that we've preserved through 2,000 years of church history are in evidence from the earliest groups of Christians that we know of. These communities were relatively isolated, as you can imagine. Um, a very small number of converted people throughout the Mediterranean that you see in, mapped out in Paul's journeys and then are continued in, by next generations of apostles would have been um, relatively isolated. It's to communicate from Spain to the Middle East at the time took a minimum of six weeks and often quite a bit longer than that. And so you can see how sometimes um, major even within sort of Roman, the highest levels of Roman politics and military, sometimes you could be conducting a war and one person, either, you know, the king on one side or the Roman emperor on the other side might die in the course of the war being fought and one side or the other or the legions who are fighting it wouldn't know for months at a time. And this can change the whole politics of the way a war is being fought. So you can imagine that Christian communities with far fewer resources um, would have been relatively isolated from one another. But they made the real effort to be in communication, mostly by uh, letters that were being sent from one group to another. This is the social context of Paul sending out his missionary letters um, and uh, some of these uh, earlier, uh, these apostolic fathers that we mentioned. For example, Clement of Rome is somebody who sent out letters along the same uh, model as Paul. Ignatius of Antioch also sent out a series of letters. So um, we can track to a certain extent the communication of different communities, Christian communities, with one another, um, although they did not necessarily all have um, access to the same groupings of scripture, for example. So um, different communities may have favored one of the four Gospels over the other one because maybe it was written um, and taken down from oral traditions that were current in a particular location. The scholars really go back and forth on what location to assign to any given one of the four Gospels, but this helps to explain why there are four instead of one. Um, one historical reason, there may be other theological reasons that we can think of why uh, there would be more than one simple story, but part of it is that these um, communities each wanted to have a, as generations go by and the apostles start to, the original generation apostles start to pass on, they um, wanted to have 
written complication, and um, they're going to get the same story in slightly different forms uh, throughout different parts of the Mediterranean. So prophets still existed, um, at least in name, uh, by bet moving between congregations um, in the early literature of the Didache, this book of early Christian teaching mentions them and what to do uh, with prophets, how to recognize whether they're being legitimate or they're just simply trying to reach off of the community. So there's a rule of three days. If, a, if an itinerant prophet wants to stay with you and eat your food and take your lodging for more than three days, then you start, you start to, to question them. But um, the uh, early church hierarchy is in the process of changing from the um, biblical model of apostles, prophets, and teachers, teachers to a model of bishops, presbyters, and deacons, which we see in the letters of Ignatius by the turn of the century. Um, and missionary ministry with Paul or Barnabas or Mark um, moving from city to city begins to transition to a local pastoral ministry where these congregations elect um, an overseer from within their body, and that person tends to stay relatively put in one place. Um, and the final major aspect of Christianity in this period that I want to talk to before handing it over to Junius is the relationship of the earliest church to Judaism. So the very the earliest church is recorded in Acts, so in about the 50s AD, so this is a little bit before the period that I'm talking about, worshipped in the temple. Um, they worshipped in the temple on Saturday, and then they held services in commemoration of Christ's resurrection on Sunday separately. So they actually would worship both of those days, and it was... Paul's habit, as we see, and I mentioned a little bit earlier, to preach first in uh, the synagogues of the new city, to talk to the Jews first, Jews who were steeped in the Torah and in the Old Testament theology um, and believers in one God, and then from there to move out to um, a Gentile mission. And the most important elements of Christian continuity with and distinction from existing Jewish communities are worked out in the New Testament. And that's something that's um, for a course on New Testament history rather than church history. But um, this process does continue to move on, and the self-differentiation of the Christian community from a Jewish community, once Christians realize that, at least not within the next generation or two, they couldn't expect the entire Jewish community to become a Christian community and to transfer, transform itself. And so there were still Jews who said, we are Jews that are not followers of Christ. And Christians had to decide, what are we going to do with this situation where we have um, the community of followers of Christ and then there are other um, people out there who are Jews but do not uh, accept the revelation of Christ. And one um, major historical event in this process of formation was a Jewish revolt against Rome, um, a political revolt taking place between 66 and 73 AD. Um, this resulted in the complete destruction of the temple, the second time the temple was destroyed. The first time was in 586 BC with, um, when the Babylonians came in and destroyed the first Solomonic temple. That temple was rebuilt under Ezra and Nehemiah at, at the end of um, Old Testament history, existed for another 400 years, was destroyed and in 70 AD um, under uh, the Roman Empire um, for in response to a uh, revolt by the Jewish people, um, a political revolt, an attempt to reestablish an independent Jewish kingdom, which the Roman Empire crushed mercilessly. It's the, the literature, in particular recorded by Josephus, whom I mentioned a little earlier, um, cataloging the events in this revolt are... The, 
terrifying. Um, the the destruction of Jerusalem in particular is an amazing passage, um, which I recommend if anyone has the chance to read uh, any of Josephus' uh, History of the Jews, is uh, well worth the read and um, marks a major turning point in the uh, relationship of Christians to Jews because um, Christians in the Holy Land did not support the political party of the Zealots, um, the people who were advocating the total overthrow of Roman political hegemony, as we see in uh, Romans 13, Paul advocated that Christians should work with um, secular authorities as being instituted by God insofar as these authorities did not command them to do something that was um, abhorrent to their faith, for example, to offer sacrifice to emperors, which of course came to a point where um, Christians did have to uh, disobey, with, uh, disobey Roman uh, law, but they did not advocate in this period the overthrow of Roman government and the establishment of their own state, whereas the, the Jews in this particular revolt did. And um, that the suppression of that revolt re- resulted in a greater dispersion of the Jews, a dis- complete destruction of the temple so that Christians or Jews could no longer worship in the temple. Um, and this, this separation caused by the fact that um, Jews did not support the Zealots in the revolt and um, wanted to distance them themselves somewhat from the Jewish community, as you can imagine, naturally, when um, the Romans are um, annihilating large sections of um, the, the Jewish community in Palestine. And uh, at the same time, uh, to accelerate this process, uh, Christianity, under the compromise that has been worked out in New Testament between um, Paul and Peter in particular, um, and then going on from there, where uh, a mission to the Gentiles is not only uh, found acceptable, but in fact encouraged, and that Gentiles who are coming into the Christian community don't first have to become Jews. They don't have to become circumcised, and they don't have to um, keep to kosher laws, but they are um, allowed to move straight from pagan Greco-Roman religion into Christianity. This mission is expanding rapidly, while the mission among the Jews, after the initial expansion following um, Christ's ministry, has not really gained a lot of ground. And so... Christian community as a whole starts to look more and more uh, Gentile and less and less Jewish. There are, there's a small amount of literature post New Testament of um, Jewish Christians, Christians who were originally uh, who, who were brought up in Jewish communities and um, accepted Christ and wrote about it, but that literature is very small and um, it's, that those communities do not expand in the same way that um, Gentile Christian communities do expand throughout the Mediterranean. And that is the state of things at the turn of the second century, and I'm going to go ahead from here and turn it over to Junius for the second portion of our introduction. My name changes to I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, in the future, you will have more time to actually stop and ask my clarifying questions. We're just we're having a snow day today, so. <laughs> um, so what was going on? What were what were people thinking during this time? What were the major options for belief? Mark pointed out that a lot of the religion was centered around public communal worship and didn't have a lot of connection to what you thought about 
morality, how you ought to live your life day to day, um, what was right and wrong to do, that information was supplied by your philosophical beliefs. Um, and that's going to be one of the major distinctions Christianity is going to bring to this. Is one of the major innovations of Christianity as a world religion is to say that these two things are not only not separate, but are in fact inseparable. That you must think of your worship and your moral action together um, to be really doing things rightly. Um, well, at this time, there were a lot of philosophical options um, out there, and um, Christians, especially as Gentile Christians are beginning to be converted, they are coming out of various ones of these philosophical traditions, and also the, as, the, as the gospel is spreading through this very Greek culture-dominated Roman Empire, there's uh, the ideas of Christianity, the philosophical part of Christianity, what would come to be called our theology, is coming into conflict with these other competing philosophical systems. And you can already see Paul. Paul has a, has a great awareness of many of these things. There's much evidence in the New Testament text that Paul was very well acquainted with Plato. He sometimes quotes other major ancient Greek philosophers, um, even within the New Testament. And so there is, he's aware of these things, and he's using his great learning, not just rabbinic, but also Greek philosophical, to, um, to spread Christianity and to situate Christianity in the context of these things. It's going to be part of the ongoing the task of the church after the apostles to negotiate philosophical waters to figure out well how much Platonism is okay for Christianity or and, you know, what do we need to draw the line and what do we need to distinguish ourselves from these other ideas that are out there um, a great deal of what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the theological part of the course is that struggle with ancient philosophy but what I want to talk about here are what are some of the ideas that we did inherit what are some of the things we did take over that will shape that discussion um, basically common philosophical presuppositions that Christianity settled upon um, from its reflection upon its uh, philosophical milieu. So uh, first, just a little information about some of the various options out there. If you, were, if you were a second century Roman citizen, what might you believe? What are your choices? Um, one of your choices, one of your big choices, is Platonism. Um, here's a, a sort of brief statement of Platonism. The eternal transcendent world of forms is true reality. That is to say, what is most real is not a particular chair, such as the one I'm sitting on, but rather chairness. The idea of chair, the form of chair, in which all of the particular chairs, the ones you guys are sitting on, the one I'm sitting on, chairs you have at home, all of those things participate in the idea of chair, and that's why we call them all chair. Right? But the most real thing out there is not this thing here, it's that chair up there. Okay? Um, and so everything is ordered to the form of the good, which is sort of the, the uber form that rides over all the others and controls them. Okay? So what's good about this? Pros of this is the recognition of a, higher, of a world that's higher than the visible world. So we're not just thinking about what's down here, the possibility of what would ultimately come to be called a supernatural. Um, also the belief that that spiritual realm is more fundamental than the material realm. This is also something Christianity would share, to say that God's reality is more real than our reality, that we have to not try to understand God in our terms, but rather reinterpret our world in God's terms. Belief in the fundamental unity of truth and goodness, and thus that one must not just believe the right things, but also act rightly. I've alluded to this already, that these two things are, are interpenetrating, so that you don't have two different things to talk about here, but really only one way of life to talk about. And then lastly, Plato was uh, the first big proponent of the immortality of the soul which obviously we Christians believe as well. Cons. Uh, the material world is seen as inherently evil and as the enemy of the soul. 
Um, that's one that Christianity is going to struggle with right down to tomorrow. <laughs> this, is, this one has not gone away. Um, inherent goodness of man. Uh, Plato's doctrine, probably taken over from Socrates, is that if we know what the good is, we will do it. The reason people do evil is because they're ignorant. Right? They, 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 we, we choose things because they're good, and um, we just settle them for lesser goods because we don't have a clear enough vision of what things are. But if you can just tell people what's right, then they'll, they'll want to do that because on the inside, they're basically good people. And then the, the last strike on Plato's record is reincarnation. Souls go through a continual process of reincarnation. And he probably got that from Pythagoras. Pythagoras was famous for saying he saw a, a, a man beating a dog and he yelled out, stop, stop. I recognize the voice of my friend and the barking of that dog. Otherwise, very smart man. <laughs> okay, so now the Stoics. Um, here's a, Marcus Aurelius was a famous Stoic and also a Roman emperor, and here's one of his... Uh, Here's one of his quotes that's a good expression of their belief. How ridiculous and how strange to be surprised at anything which happens in life. The reason this is a good stoic doctrine is because surprise itself is ridiculous. You shouldn't be surprised. That's a strong emotion and you should, you should kind of hold down. The wise man remains unmoved in the face of both extreme external good and evil and is therefore not harmed by either. Right? If you don't get excessively excited by the really good things that happen to you, um, nor do you get excessively disturbed by the really bad things that happen to you, right? then the calm, the peace of your soul is not dependent on the external things that happen to you. It's dependent on your own virtue. Okay? Good about this is the belief that man's ultimate blessedness does not consist in the fortunes or misfortunes in this world, but in inner virtue. This has much to recommend itself in a Christian context. Also, the Stoics were famous for believing that all humans, slave and free alike, are children of the gods and therefore of equal dignity. This is not a normal idea in the Roman Empire. Okay? This, I mean, slavery, this is not necessarily the shadow slavery of the American South, but this is not a happy-go-lucky, fuzzy, warm slavery either. Okay? Slaves are of a lesser status. Look elsewhere for your warm, fuzzy slavery. Um, now, what's bad about Stoicism? Well, they thought the soul died with the body. So that's no good. Um, also, this Stoicism is, has a strong tendency towards pantheism, uh, which is to say that God and nature are equated. Nature is God. Okay? Um, and, there, and also they have an equation of the ultimate good with self-control. That's the highest moral virtue is self-control, which ultimately is salvation by works. Um, there's a tendency towards asceticism, which comes out of this philosophical movement, right? because asceticism is, a, is treating the body harshly in order to discipline yourself. You train your soul by treating your body harshly. Um, Plato also could tend towards this with his emphasis on the soul over the body and the body as the body's desires as something which interfered with the soul's path towards knowledge and understanding. Um, and the Stoics have the same problem. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's, the, that's that's something that Paul is interacting with here, yeah, and, he's, and that's something Christianity is going to have to really struggle with because as as the monastic movement begins, you have a lot of people who think the best way to to worship God is to move out of the desert and climb a tall pillar of rock and sit on it. Uh, the idea is that you have a pillar of rock about this wide, but you know maybe 30 or 40 feet high, and so that you can't really lie down or relax in any way, and you just sit on it 
and think about God and pray and worship up there all by yourself on your little rock in the wind. Right. Um, and Christianity is having to decide, well, is that, is that the best way to do things or isn't it? Right. And, and this philosophy is playing into that. All right. Um, Epicureans. Now, Epicureans get a bad rap um, because we, you know, the, typically when we think of Epicureans, you think of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Okay, which is sort of like, so we think, okay, so Epicureans are all about wild, crazy hedonism. They're like the frat boys of the Roman Empire. You know, um, if you're looking for a good time, call the Epicureans. <laughs> well, that's not exactly accurate. Um, they, 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 are, they are hedonists because they believe that pleasure, they, they believe that the highest good is in, um, is in avoiding pain. Okay, but... Epicureanism is founded on, it is really all about the absence of pain, and so in order to avoid pain, you have to avoid excess. And so that means the excess is a pleasure as well. So um, they, they had a lot to say about avoiding sexual pleasure, um, avoiding uh, the debauchery of the Roman banquets, because they felt that this would ultimately lead to a lot of pain. You know, Sure, you can drink and be merry, but then you're going to have a hangover. And so we're trying to avoid the hangover, and the best solution for that is not to drink so much, right? So really it's the principle of moderation in order to protect you from um, various things that could go wrong. So um, it's good of them that they think that the highest good consists in knowledge, friendship, and living a virtuous and temperate life. That's not exactly what Christians think, obviously, but it's, it's moving. We can work with that. You know, we can talk to somebody who has that as their highest good and sort of bring them uh, towards more gospel ideas. That's about all they have to offer us. Um, negative uh, is the materialism. This whole pleasure principle is a physical pleasure principle. It's the idea of avoiding pain, bodily pain. Right? It's, so that's really limiting it there. And they also do believe that matter is all that exists. There's nothing other than the material world that exists, which is a problem. They also have the same tendency towards asceticism. So these three philosophies all share a possibility of leading towards asceticism. So you can see why Christianity would really have to deal with this because um, on the one hand, um, there are some passages even in the Gospels, um, if your right hand offending, cut it off, that makes it seem like we should punish the body. And there's a major drive towards it from various philosophical um, backgrounds. Um, also, there's a deism. So that they do believe that matter is all that exists. Um, they think that there are gods, but the gods are made of the same matter, the same stuff that the universe is made out of. So they have their own world that they live in. But their world is so far away from ours that they really don't have any idea what's going on in our world. I mean, you know, if you think it's far to go from Jerusalem to Tarsus, right, imagine how far it is to go from Jerusalem to Olympus, okay? So those guys, they don't even get messengers from here. They don't have any clue what's happening down here, nor do they care. Why should they? They're, they're living a good life. So um, it's pointless to sacrifice to them, to pray to them, to worship them in any way, because they're just not going to notice. You know? they don't, they're not mad at you. They just don't care about you. So it's sort of a, a good old-fashioned deism there. They wind up the world and walk away from it. Um, now, the other major thing that's going to start coming about in our period is Neoplatonism. Technically, Neoplatonism hasn't really started yet. Um, today, this Sunday, it's 100 AD. And at 100 AD, we're still in the midst of something that we call Middle Platonism. To distinguish between True Platonism and Neoplatonism, there's this transitional period that we call Middle Platonism. Um, 
Neoplatonism has an enormous impact on Christianity. Um, is in various forms the philosophy against which Christianity has struggled most often and um, probably still one of the major problems that one of the major popular philosophies that Christianity struggles against today. So we're going to talk about Neoplatonism later. We're going to give it its own day and I'll show you how it's resurfaced at various points in Christian history, uh, in the history of philosophy and also that some of the ways in which we continue to struggle against that. Um, so I can talk about it now. So don't worry about it. Just move on. Um, I will say at this, at this point, a word about the reading. Um, if you looked at the two sets of readings, you may have noticed a difference in not only length, but also character between the two readings. Um, the readings from the Kelly book are much more theological. They're really, that book is about the ideas. Um, and they will, that reading will tend to be denser it will tend to require you to read it a little slower and possibly several times. Um, because of that, I have specified page numbers rather than whole swatches of chapters for you to read to try to keep it more manageable. Um, I just want to remind you, the point of the reading is to give you some preparation for what we're going to talk about coming in and another shot at it. Um, and you can also maybe good to go back and look at some of it after the fact. Again, bless you. Um, but it's really, you know, if you read it and it's not making a whole lot of sense, we're going to talk about it in here so you've got that, that safety net. And also do bring those questions in here because it'll be, it, it could be probably someone else had the same question you did. Um, but don't let his, you know, he's a very, he's got a very stiff 19th century British tone. Don't let that throw you. He's really quite a nice guy. All right. So those are, those are your major philosophical options. If you're going out to pick up sort of a loaf of bread and a philosophy to live your life by, that's what you're going to see on the shelf. So um, there, are, there are other things, too, but these are the main ones for your influence on Christianity. Now, the next section of things are things that are kind of common beliefs, common, common philosophical ideas. These are all about the Godhead. So in trying to conceive what the gods are like, at this period in time, everyone, at least all the, all the philosophical sort of intellectual people, are, have pretty much rejected the old... Greek view of the gods that, that you would find in the, in the Odyssey and in the Iliad where the gods are very, very people-like. You know, they get angry, they get jealous, they can't control their wives, they, you know, have petty arguments that they take out on us, and, and it's just a mess, right? Um, so Plato, in, in Socrates, through Plato, came down really hard on this view of the gods and just says that this is... This is about the most unworthy thing we can say of the people concerning whom we ought to say the most worthy things. And so by the time Christianity gets getting going, everyone's pretty much recognized that this is, um, this is maybe okay for the popular masses, I think, of the gods in this way, but that's not really what, are, what they are. So at this time, even when people talk about standard Greek gods, like Artemis of the Ephesians, they're already starting, that is not the same... Artemis, that's Diana, not the same goddess that, that she was in Hesiod when he's writing, you know, nearly a millennium before, writing stories about the beginning of the world and the way the gods did all these various things. Already she's being turned into more of a, um, into more of a god of the philosophers, more of a goddess who is above all that stuff, okay? So all of the various philosophical groups, as well as Christianity, um, will pretty much assent to the following list of principles about the divinity. 
Um, and so this is this is a common basis of conversation with these philosophies. If someone steps up and says, "Oh, well, you can't say that about the Godhead because that would mean the God the, the divinity isn't simple," everyone in the conversation would say, "Oh, that's a good point." Right? There's no one's going to disagree with this. So. We call this, this, this group of ideas classical theism, and this is not an exhaustive account of it. Um, we say it because it, it was developed in the classical period from classical sources, largely Plato and Aristotle, and because this becomes how to think about God, and therefore theism. Okay? Um, these following ideas were never seriously questioned by any, any theist in our period, including the Church Fathers. They would come up at every turn of our journey to the development of Christian thought. Um, just to give you a sense, you really have to get all the way to... 18th century German Protestantism before anybody seriously questions one of these ideas. So for the next 1,700 years, these ideas are unquestioned assumptions about what God must be like. Okay. The first of these is simplicity. Simplicity can be a little hard for, for us to understand in the contemporary world. What it, what it says is that God is not made up of parts. Okay. Now, any type of part you can imagine is excluded. Okay. So, he doesn't have matter, because if you have matter, you've got discrete portions of it, so that's right out. Um, also, no metaphysical parts. The account of humanity at this time is generally that we have, you know, two or more metaphysical parts to us. We have a soul, either immortal or mortal. We have a body. Um, Aristotle would say we have matter, and then we have form, which... You know, there's like stuff, and then there's humanity, and humanity comes into stuff to make that into a human person. Um, all of these things are constituents, metaphysical constituents, and God can't have any of those either. It's not cool. Um, one of the one of the main driving forces behind this is that if something is put together with parts, then those parts are at least logically separable. And so, the idea is that anything that is put together can be taken apart. And so even if it never actually comes apart, it could come apart. And that's not worthy of the divine nature to say that God could sort of collapse. Not cool. But this also means that the divine attributes are not different things. So but they're different ways of saying the same thing. In other words, God's, it's not the case that God is merciful and just, and these are kind of two competing tendencies within God, right? And they're sort of duking it out. And thankfully for us, mercy wins out. Whew, that was close. All right. Rather, mercy and justice are two different ways to refer to the one divine being. What this means, if you understand this rightly, is that there's, ne- there's never any conflict between mercy and justice. Right? This is, these aren't warring principles that God has to reconcile, but they exist in God in such a way that there, there's always harmony and there's always unity. Right? And that's a groundbreaking idea. The second one of these is immutability, which means that God cannot change. Now, here's, here's the reasoning here. There are only two ways change happens. Something goes from being better to worse, or from being worse to better. Okay? There's nothing better than God, so he can't get better. Right? Um, it's blasphemous to suggest that God would want to become worse, because that's not wise. And the idea that God could be forced from outside to become worse argues against omnipotence, because then something is more powerful than God if it can make him change against his will. Therefore, God cannot change. Underlying this is the philosophical presumption against change. Right? The way they're construing change at first, that it can only be from better to worse or worse to better, that's something you could question. Right? You might think, well, aren't there other kinds of change in the world? 
Um, but no one seriously did question that at this point. This is the kind of change that they're working with. So, so um, that's going to have ramifications. And it leads directly to the next one, which is impassibility. Impassibility means that God can't suffer. The root of impassibility is the same as the root of the word passion, which is not, you know, I love you, right? But it's the passion of Christ. Um, it only comes to me, I love you, because in the Middle Ages there was so much dialogue about how, you know, unrequited love, and you love her, and she doesn't love you, and you're in suffering, and that suffering, that's the passion part, okay? So impassibility means not, not passability, not, not able to do passion. So this means that nothing external to God can cause a reaction in God, okay? Um, the most immediate upshot of this is that God does not have emotions. He is never really angry or sad. We're only speaking metaphorically when we say that he is. No one questions this until the 18th century. Okay? This may seem like the most counterintuitive thing in the world to you, especially if you have an evangelical background where all we talk about is God's love for us, his tender mercies and affection. No. That's all metaphor. Okay? God doesn't actually feel for you. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you, but it's not love isn't the emotional thing that you're thinking about. Right? It's his commitment to you. He's going to take care of you. That he desires you to be with him in fellowship. But you can't think of that in an emotional sense unless you immediately remind yourself that you're only talking about a metaphor. Okay? This does not apply to the human nature of Christ. Christ can have emotions because Christ is not just God, he's also man. But those emotions are going to happen in his human nature and not in his divine nature. Okay? Um, all of these ideas were seriously questioned by the church in the 18th century, and all of these ideas are um, the minority theological view today. But they were not the majority view in our period. They were the only view in our period. This is going to be important because we're going to look at some of these arguments about um, the nature of Christ and the nature of the Trinity, and we're going to say, hey, guys, what's the problem? Why can't you just say this? And the reason that they can't say that is going to be one of these three philosophical ideas. Because they, they aren't willing to say that God has emotions, therefore they're not willing to make one of the steps that we would make to get out of the dilemma. Okay. So the challenge we're going to have to face, and this is really beyond the scope of this class, but you're going to start asking yourselves these questions, and, you're, and you should, and it's what you're going to be thinking about going forward from this class is, Okay, so we have some options to say some things now without getting into trouble that they didn't have because we believe we're, we're not as afraid to attribute emotions to God because it, doesn't, it wouldn't mean the same thing to us. To them to say God has emotions to say that God is imperfect and that he's, he's weak because he can be affected from outside, he's changeable because the emotional states are always in flux, it's just a, a weak, weak God you got there. Um, we can conceive of emotions in a way that don't imply imperfection, and so we've got that open to us. So the question we've got to ask ourselves is, when we try to articulate Christology or Trinitarian theology with this new philosophical understanding that we have, where we can allow for emotions in God, are we still saying the same thing in substance that they were saying? In other words, is the difference between our theology and their theology grounded upon the fact that they had different philosophical challenges they had to refer to, or are we actually saying something different in substance from them? This is going to be an important question to ask ourselves, because ultimately the story that we're telling here is not the story of a church, not even the story of an old church, and not even the story of a church that was the ancestor of our church, but in fact the story of our church. 
The church extends through space and time. All Christians are united in Christ through space and time. So these guys that we're reading, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They weren't Presbyterians. They weren't Americans. But they're part of the one true, holy, Catholic, apostolic church. doesn't mean we have to agree with everything they say. But it means we have to take seriously what they say and why they said it. And that's what we're going to try to do here, is try to understand not just what they said, but why did they say it. What were they hoping to gain, and what were they trying not to lose in the way that they said it? Okay? Let's pray, and uh, fellowship and worship. Father in heaven, we thank you for the time that we have to come together and study the history of your spirits working in, the, in your own people. Um, it's a privilege and an honor to be asked to think along with you um, to try to recognize the ways in which your spirit was leading your people into all truth. We pray that you would give us your eyes and your spirit, that same spirit of understanding that we may see clearly, that we may um, be edified by this, that we may see the ways in which the challenges the church, the early church faced, parallel the challenges we face today, that our souls might be strengthened by their steadfastness, by the earnestness of their search for truth, and that we might be confirmed in the truth by what we read here. Father, speak to us through, your, through the history of your church and tell us what you would have us to know. Father, we pray also that you would give us... Um, that you give us soft hearts and focused minds for worship, that we may feel the influence of your Spirit and render unto you with joy um, our Christian duty. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.